We're, uh, we're going to continue in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we took a break during the month of December uh, to look at the book of Hebrews as we approach Christmas, and now we're back in Mark. And as far as I know, we're in Mark for the long haul uh, until we get to the end of this Gospel. So uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52 is where we're going to be this morning. And, and as you're turning there, if you have a Bible, I just want to uh, remind you kind of where we're at in this Gospel uh, for the last couple chapters of Mark, from about halfway through Mark 8 to where we're at right now, we see that Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem. He is journeying toward Jerusalem, and specifically, he is headed to the cross. And this entire section is called the way section because there's this repetition of this phrase in, in Mark 8, 9, and 10 of the way, and Jesus was on the way. And the focus here is that he is on the way to the cross. And next week, we are going to get to a very famous passage. It's the triumphal entry. Uh, it is Mark 11, uh, where Jesus is finally in Jerusalem. And, and significantly, uh, this is the last, Sunday, the last passage of the Gospel of Mark that we don't know the exact date that it took place on. So next week, we will see Jesus enter into Jerusalem, and that took place on April 2nd, 30 A.D., and the rest of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, all take place over the course of the next week, culminating, of course, in Jesus' crucifixion and then his resurrection just a few days after that. This morning's text actually takes place just a few days before that, so probably late March 30 AD, where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Now, this journey to Jerusalem started months earlier, uh, about 100 miles north of, of Jerusalem in Jericho, where we will be this morning in the land of Caesarea Philippi in Mark chapter 8. And over the course of Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10, Jesus has been steadily focused on journeying to Jerusalem, knowing what awaits him when he gets there. He's not caught off guard by what awaits him when he gets to Jerusalem. And as he's walking toward Jerusalem, He's headed towards his death on the cross, fully aware of what is about to take place. Jesus commits himself in Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10 to teaching his disciples about the gospel. Specifically, this culminates in Mark 10, 45, where Jesus says that he has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And over these last couple chapters, as, as Jesus has been teaching his disciples the gospel, he has been made, he's made it abundantly clear to them that he is headed to the cross, and if they want to follow him, if they want to be his disciples, then they also have to pick up a cross as well. Mark 8, 34 through 35. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For if anyone who, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. If you want to truly follow Jesus, then that means a cross. But here's the thing the disciples didn't get that. They had eyes, but they could not see what it meant to follow Jesus. Jesus. They assumed the kingdom of God would come in the exact same way that the kingdom of the world operates. This mindset that if you exalt yourself and if you exert your will, then you will be promoted and the kingdom of God will come. Not this idea of give up your rights and ultimately give up your life. 
And as we're soon going to see here in this passage this morning, this is the second healing of a blind man in the Gospel of Mark. And that's not to say that Jesus only healed two blind people in his mystery. No, uh, in, his, in, his, in, his, uh, in his ministry. Mark is very intentional on what he includes and what he does not include of what Jesus has done in his ministry. So what he is doing here is very intentional in including this moment where Jesus can heal the physically blind, but more importantly for us is, does Jesus also heal, heal the spiritually blind? And turn this question onto yourself this morning. You may have eyes that can see, but can you actually see? Remember Jesus' challenge to his disciples in Mark chapter 8. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? The story we turn our attention to this morning is a beautiful story. It is a beautiful, powerful picture of this blind man who has nothing and Jesus gives him everything. But it also serves as a very important reminder to us and I think a very appropriate one as we begin a new year. Do we really see Jesus? Do we really see Jesus for who he truly is? And the very real asks that he makes of us if we would follow him. You see, that's the overarching question of this passage this morning. It should be on our minds as we consider this text. Each day as we enter into the new year, we should be wrestling with this question. Do we have eyes to see Jesus? So let's consider this passage and how it reveals Jesus to us. How it reveals Jesus to be more beautiful, more glorious, more magnificent than anything else that we could ever fathom. And we'll just follow this story verse by verse, and it really breaks down into three key sections. First is the, the call or the cry. Next is the question, and then finally is the response. Let's pray as we approach God's word. Lord, as we approach your word this morning, I just echo the words of the Greeks in John 12, when they approach Philip and just say, we would see Jesus. God, that's our prayer this morning, that we would see you. Help us to see you more clearly, more magnificently this morning in these words. And God, I pray that you would help us to make that our prayer each and every day of this new year, that we would see you more clearly. God, we ask that you would bless this time in your word, and and we are confident that your spirit is is at work among us in the proclamation of your word. So we, we ask that you would speak because we long to hear. It's in the name of Jesus, the son of David, we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 10, we'll start in verse 46. And they came to Jericho... And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. And said, call him. 
And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Our text opens with a cry. Starting again, verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. The text begins by giving us the setting of what is taking place here. As I mentioned earlier, this is the final days of March of A.D. 30. Tens of thousands of Jews are on their way at this moment to Jerusalem. They're coming from all over the known world in order to celebrate the Passover. And thousands of those Jews will pass through this town of Jericho in order for them to make the final trip to Jerusalem. It was an 18-mile hike from Jericho to Jerusalem. The trip from Jericho to Jerusalem was actually a very difficult one, a strenuous one. Jericho was located about 850 feet below sea level. And over the course of those 18 miles, you get to Jerusalem, which was located about 2,500 feet above sea level. This is a very strenuous walk for people, about 200 feet of climb every single mile. Pilgrims would gather together in Jericho before they would make this difficult journey up the mountains into Jerusalem. And as they would gather in Jericho and then they would set off together, they would sing songs on the way to Jerusalem. And these songs would be filled with expectation and filled with joy and filled with this this desire for deliverance, remembering how God had delivered his people in the Old Testament and longing for God to do the exact same thing today. Especially in the first century, the, the Passover celebrations in the first century, there was this like electric energy that was in the air that came with this expectation that God would deliver his people. Remember what the Passover celebrates. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, the Passover, at least the original Passover, was this celebration or this time where God saved his people from slavery to Egypt, to this pagan nation. And now, thousands of years later, in the first century, the the Jewish people are now enslaved, again, not, not literally, but figuratively, they are oppressed by the Roman Empire. And they long for God's deliverance once again. They long for a king. They long for the son of David to come and free them from Roman rule. And it's in this context of of expectation and energy in the air that it's it's no surprise that, that Jesus attracts this huge crowd to him on his journey to Jerusalem. The word about who Jesus is and what Jesus is able to do has spread far beyond him. And people begin to be attracted to Jesus. In fact, the very same day that Jesus heals Bartimaeus is the exact same day that Jesus calls Zacchaeus to follow him in Luke chapter 18 or 19. I can't remember exactly. And Jesus and his disciples are are on their way to Jerusalem amongst this crowd of thousands of other people. But significantly, there is one person who is not making this trip. And Mark tells us in this verse that his name is Bartimaeus, but rather than journeying to Jerusalem, rather than being on the way to Jerusalem, he is sitting on the way to Jerusalem because he is blind. 
And as a blind man, he is completely helpless. He is completely dependent upon the generosity of other people in order to make ends meet. And even if Bartimaeus was able to make it to Jerusalem, he would not have been allowed to worship in the temple because of his blindness. But with thousands of extra people passing through town, through Jericho, on their way to Jerusalem, the best thing for, for Bartimaeus to do in order to make some money to make ends meet was sit on the road, sit on the way to Jerusalem and beg people for money. Now Mark has painted us this scene here in the, the first verse, and, and what a contrast he gives to us. On the one hand, we have thousands of joyful and expectant worshipers who are on their way to Jerusalem in order to worship God for the deliverance that he has given to his people and longing for that deliverance to come again. And on the other hand, we have Bartimaeus, this blind beggar sitting on the side of the road, his cloak spread out before him, hoping that these worshipers will take seriously the call of the Old Testament to take care of the poor so that he can find food for another day. Verse 47, And when he, Bartimaeus, heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, at some point, Bartimaeus hears in this crowd that Jesus is present. This is Jesus' first trip to Jericho, but we should not be surprised that Bartimaeus is aware of him. Jesus' reputation has spread throughout the countryside, throughout the region, into all of these different areas. And seemingly everyone has heard the stories of this incredible miracle worker from Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, this man from Galilee. And at first, I'm sure that Bartimaeus just assumed that the, the commotion in the crowd was just what normally took place during Passover as thousands of people are headed to Jerusalem. But then he begins to realize that his wildest dreams have come true. Just, just think for a minute. We don't know how long Bartimaeus has been blind, but how many times do you think that Bartimaeus has prayed that God would heal his blindness? How many times do you think that Bartimaeus wrestled inwardly with what sin he is guilty of to create this blindness? Because that was the common view in that day. If you were blind or if you were sick or dealing with something, it was because it was God's judgment upon you. How many times do you think as he was sitting there on the roadside with his cloak laid out in front of him as he was begging for money, he let his mind wander and he began to remember and dream about what it was like or what it would be like to have sight again? And in that instant, when he realizes that Jesus is walking by, all of those dreams become a reality. All of those prayers can be answered because Jesus, the miracle worker, the one who has healed others, the one who has even raised the dead, is within earshot. And so Bartimaeus does what I think any and every one of us would do in that situation, he starts screaming for Jesus' attention. The word shout isn't strong enough here. It really is referring to this screaming 
that Bartimaeus is doing. Bartimaeus begins screaming for Jesus' attention. Remember, Bartimaeus is blind. He can't get up. He can't go hunt Jesus down in the crowd like this bleeding woman from Mark chapter 5 who does the exact same thing. She wants to see Jesus, but she, she can't get his attention, and so she just uh, weaves her way through the crowd and, and touches his cloak. She, he can't do that. So he uses his only thing that he has, and that is his voice. And he, he screams as loud as he can because he doesn't know how long Jesus will be within earshot. Now, notice his cry. His cry is significant, and as we're going to soon see, it reveals his stunning faith. There's two halves to his cry. First, he calls Jesus the son of David. It's the only time that this phrase, this title, is used in the Gospel of Mark. I alluded to its significance earlier. The people of Israel thought that there would be a king someday who would come and deliver them. And this king would be the son of David, according to the Old Testament. And so for Bartimaeus to refer to Jesus as the son of David, it is a declaration from Bartimaeus of who he believes Jesus really is. He's the long-awaited king. He's the one who will come and bring God's kingdom. He's the one who's going to come and make all things right. Jesus, son of David. Second, he cries out for mercy. In the Old Testament, God is the one who gives mercy to those who are undeserving. The Psalms are filled with examples of people crying out to God for mercy, to cry out to God for deliverance, for his help. And that's exactly what we see here. Do you see the irony of this passage? Here we have a blind man who's the only one who can see Jesus clearly. He's the only one who can see who Jesus really is. And because he has the eyes to see that Jesus is really the son of David, he is going to stop at nothing to get to him. Verse 48. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now the crowd isn't wild about Bartimaeus' screaming, and so they tell him to stop. The language here is the exact same language that's used in Mark to describe Jesus casting out demons. It is a very strong rebuke. It's, it's not this quiet shush, just, just stop talking, be a little quieter. No, this is a, a very loud, rude rejection of Bartimaeus. I wouldn't be surprised if they were heckling and jeering him, saying to him, hey, you want Jesus? You really think the miracle worker from Nazareth is going to pay attention to a blind beggar like you, shut up and stop wasting his time. This is the rebuke of the crowds. They can't fathom a kingdom where the person who is on top would pay attention to someone like Bartimaeus. Of course, Bartimaeus doesn't listen. He starts shouting all the more, son of David, have mercy on me and his persistence here, just another sign of faith. This is a man who knows what Jesus can give to him, and he won't stop until Jesus does give it to him. Verse 49, and Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. Now remember the setting of this passage. It's not like there are five people on the road. There's hundreds, thousands of people on this road on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. There would have been singing. 
There would have been dancing on the way to Jerusalem. It would have been so easy for Bartimaeus' cries to Jesus for mercy to get drowned out, for them to go unnoticed. It would have been so easy for Jesus in this sea of humanity to just go along with the crowd. To, to be, did I hear something? Did I? And just keep going forward to not look back. Mark 9, Mark 10 actually tell us that Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, that he is on a mission in order to get to Jerusalem. He is not going to be distracted, except for here. Jesus stops. Consider the weight of those three words. And Jesus stopped. You see, here's Bartimaeus, and he's crying out for mercy. And it stops Jesus dead in his tracks. Here in this sea of humanity, Jesus roots himself to the ground and he lets the people, the crowds, flow by him because he is not going another inch until he brings this man mercy. This man who so desperately needs mercy. This man who so desperately longs for mercy. Thousands of people will pass by this man and his plight and his cry for mercy, but not the son of David. Do you see the son of David here? Don't for a second think that your cries for mercy in your own life, that he is going to pass you by. Don't for a second think that he is too busy, that he is too concerned with other things to listen to you and your pleas for help. Don't think that you are too unimportant for the attention of Jesus. Whatever you need, cry out for mercy, and he will provide exactly what you need, better than you could ever fathom. Do you see the son of David? So Jesus calls Bartimaeus to him. And this fickle crowd now shows interest in the man. You see how quickly they, they shift. They wouldn't give him the time of day, and now they're rooting for him. Hey, come on, take heart, be encouraged. Jesus wants to see you, verse 50. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Notice Bartimaeus' actions here, how he responds to Jesus' call. Mark doesn't just tell us that he came to Jesus, just as Jesus called. He actually tells us how he came to Jesus. Let's look at the second first. First, it, uh, or the second, it says he sprang up or jumped up. This is a word that, that conveys excitement, uh, this eagerness, this expectation from Bartimaeus. Here is this man who has been crying out for mercy, and the son of David has now called him, and now he will respond with expectation and excitement and earnestness because he believes that something is about to happen. So he springs up. He, he jumps up with this joy and expectation. What takes place before that? Well, it, says it, also, it also says that he throws off his cloak. Now, as a beggar, most likely the only possession he would have had would have been his cloak. It would have been the thing that would keep him warm at night. It would be what, while begging, he would lay out in front of him. And people would throw money into his cloak as a way to provide for him. It likely had money on that cloak at that very moment. 
and he throws it away. He throws it away to follow Jesus. Why? Because he won't need it anymore. For Bartimaeus, it is absolutely unthinkable for Jesus to call to him and then Jesus to not come through for him. For Jesus to not show him mercy. For Jesus to not meet his greatest need. He throws away his cloak because he doesn't need it anymore. I think there's a second reason why he throws it away. It's a piggybacking off of the first. In throwing away his cloak, Bartimaeus is showing himself to be a true disciple. Now, if you remember, uh, uh, I think it was in November, we looked at the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. So just a couple verses before this. And in the story of the rich young ruler, Jesus says, you know, you, you do all these things, you, you um, are, are just this great example, but there's one thing you lack. And what is it? It's to get rid of all of your possessions and follow me. See, Jesus called this young man who had the world at his fingertips, who earnestly wants to follow Jesus, but is unwilling to make the sacrifice to leave everything and to follow Jesus. The man just can't do it. The rich young ruler, the perfect candidate to be Jesus' disciple, cannot follow Jesus. But here we have a nobody, a blind beggar, someone dismissed by the crowds as a nobody, and he throws off, of his, throws off his cloak. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, he counts every gain he had as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Here's a man who is surrounded by hundreds or thousands of people, and you can see that he is the only one who truly sees Jesus and how valuable and precious and worthy Jesus is to follow. Bartimaeus, the blind man, is the only one who sees. That brings us to the climax of the passage, this question, verse 51. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, Jesus' question seems silly, doesn't it? It's obvious what the man Bartimaeus wants from Jesus. I, I confess I do this to my kids all the time. Uh, leftover Christmas cookies sitting on the counter, and I'm munching on them. And they'll come up and see that I have something in my mouth. Jordan, or Dad, what are you, what are you eating? And I'll just point to the bag of salad right there and say, you want some? I'm like, Dad, you're kidding. We're smart enough to know that you're not eating a cookie, right? Or you're eating a cookie. You're not munching on salad. Is that what Jesus is doing here? He's just playing a practical joke on him, a bad dad joke from the son of David? Well, that's not what's taking place here at all. Jesus clearly knows what Bartimaeus wants. So why does he ask him? Two reasons. First, this is a clear test of Bartimaeus' faith. We've seen this time and time and time again in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus puts people into uncomfortable situations in order to test their faith. Jesus cares more about their faith, and, and I'll be honest, he cares more about our faith as well than he does about our comfort, about our security, about our pride. And so in Mark chapter 5, Jesus is on his way with Jairus to go heal his very sick daughter who is on the verge of death. And Jesus stops and lets Jairus' daughter die in order to test Jairus' faith. Do you really believe in me? 
that I am able to do not just what you have seen, but more than you could ever imagine. Mark chapter 7, Jesus is talking to a Gentile woman in Syrophoenicia, and he begins to talk to this woman, and she asks Jesus to heal her daughter, and he said, why on earth would I do that for someone who is a Gentile like you? And it sounds really shocking and and frankly offensive for Jesus to say that until we realize that Jesus is testing her faith. Does she actually get who Jesus is? Does she actually get what Jesus has come to do? He places people in uncomfortable situations in order to test and grow their faith. They come, we come to Jesus with a kernel of faith and we say, hey Jesus, I can probably do about this much. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be painful, but we are going to go a whole lot further than that. He asks Barnabas this question to grow his faith. Second reason, notice that Jesus' question uh, leveled at Bartimaeus here in verse 51 is the exact same question that he asked James and John in verse 36. James and John come to Jesus in verse 36 asking, say, hey, we, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And Jesus responds, what do you want me to do for you? And we are probably familiar with their response. They say, hey, we want one of us to sit at your right hand, one of us to sit at your left hand when you become uh, enthroned, when you become the king, basically, when you come in power and glory. James and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples, they want nothing but power. They're following Jesus because they want to use Jesus in order to further their own glory. And by responding in that way, they show that they don't really have faith, at least not full faith yet. How does Bartimaeus respond? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. See, Bartimaeus doesn't want his own glory. He doesn't want his own exaltation. He doesn't want power. He just wants mercy. And he voices it to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to see. I want to see passage closes with a response. Verse 52. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. You see here, Jesus, without touching Bartimaeus, without saying any special words of healing at all, Jesus simply just says, because of your faith, you are made well. Or literally, he says, because of your faith, you are saved. And the man's healed. See, throughout this entire story, the the faith of Bartimaeus is on display. I I think you can argue that Bartimaeus is the pinnacle example of what it means to be a disciple, of what it means to follow Jesus wholeheartedly in the entire gospel of Mark. This blind man who is the only one who can actually see who Jesus is. And this chapter closes powerfully. Jesus and the crowd, they begin their journey to Jerusalem. And Bartimaeus is no longer sitting on the side of the road. No longer sitting on the way. Now he is on the way with Jesus to Jerusalem. 
Remember I said earlier that in Mark, this phrase, the way, it is a reference to Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, but more specifically, it is a reference to Jesus' journey to the cross. This isn't coincidental language here in verse 52. This phrase that Jesus, or that Bartimaeus joins Jesus on the way, coupled with the fact that he is following Jesus, is a very powerful declaration that Bartimaeus is Jesus' disciple. As far as we know, Bartimaeus seems to be the only one who understands the words of Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he, Jesus, said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Discipleship leads to the cross. This passage gives us a clear picture of what it means to be a disciple. And as we start at the beginning of a new year, I can't think of a better way to begin than by looking at this passage and seeing what does it actually mean to be a disciple? What does it actually mean to follow Jesus? It means to follow him to the cross. In fact, that's what this text is really about. Those who truly see Jesus will follow him to the cross. Those who truly see Jesus will follow Jesus to the cross. Jesus is just days away from the cross, and here he gains a new disciple from the most unlikely of places, a blind man who can truly see. What is a disciple according to this passage? Well, using the example of Bartimaeus, we see four key attributes of a disciple. A disciple is someone who sees Jesus for who he truly is, who sees himself or herself as they truly are, who follows Jesus wholeheartedly, and who follows him to the cross. Let's break those apart here just briefly. Consider Bartimaeus. First, Bartimaeus, even though he is blind, is the only one who sees Jesus for who he truly is. He's the only one who calls Jesus the son of David. He's the only one who calls Jesus the Messiah. He's the only one who cries out to Jesus for mercy from this man. He's the only one who has faith in Jesus, not just as this cool miracle worker or this popular teacher, but instead as the one who can give him the mercy that he so desperately needs. What about you? Do you see Jesus for who he truly is? Or are you still blind? Sure, we may recognize in our heads that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is our Savior, that he is our Lord. But what about day-to-day life? When tragedy strikes us, our world's turned completely upside down, either through a diagnosis or an accident or some sort of tragedy. Where does our heart run to in order to make sense of the world? Where is it that we run to for hope when a coworker? or a neighbor, or a family member mischaracterizes us, or, or speaks poorly of us, or treats us unfairly, how do we respond? Do we, do we trust God, the, the faithful judge of all things, to take care of things in his own timing, in his own hands? Or do we say, well, I'm going to take care of this on my own? In our functional, day-to-day lives, do we see Jesus as who he truly is, as Lord, Savior, king, the only one who can satisfy, the only one who can give us peace and hope, or do we run elsewhere? This morning I was, uh, in my devotions, I was reading Genesis chapter 3, which is the story of the fall, and it's significant how the fall starts. Satan, the serpent, he's talking to Eve, and the first phrase out of his mouth is, did God really say? 
And there's a seed of doubt that is planted in Eve's heart. Can I really trust God? Is God really the way that he describes himself? Can I really trust that God is loving and caring, that God actually wants what's best for me? This is the seed of all sin in our lives. Do we really see God as the one who is, who is all loving, who is all caring, who will take care of us, who knows better than we do what is best for us, or do we doubt that? Do we really see Jesus for who he really is? Second, Bartimaeus is the only one who sees himself for who he really is. Compared Bartimaeus to the rich young ruler earlier, you could do the same thing with the disciples. All of these people, they bring a resume to Jesus. Uh, they, they come pursuing their own gain. That's not what Bartimaeus does. He com- comes completely helpless. He comes crying out for mercy. The hymn, Rock of Ages, describes this so well. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. What about you? Do you see yourself for who you truly are, or are you, again, blind to your helplessness? Those words, do they offend you? Is the notion of coming to Jesus with with empty hands as a beggar, begging for mercy, is that too much for you? We like to be people who, who have our our act together, our lives together, not to see our own great need for the gospel, not just confessing it, but living it out each and every day. Take a hard look at yourself. Are you more like the rich young ruler? Or are you like a blind beggar? Do you have eyes to see? Third, Remember how Bartimaeus responds to the call of Jesus. He forsakes everything and he does it without reservation. I look at my own life. And I see how big of an indictment this example of Bartimaeus is. This man who leaves everything behind in order to follow Jesus. And I look at my own life and I consider how often that I cling too tightly to the things that God has entrusted to me. All too often I have more in common with the rich young ruler than I do with this blind beggar, not wanting to let go of everything and place it into Jesus' hands. Again, what about you? Are you willing to follow Jesus without reservation? Or are there certain areas of your life that you refuse to surrender, that they are firmly under your control, where you are still seated on the throne of your life? Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously once said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. You dictate to God what he can and cannot do in your life. God calls us to die to self that we might live in Christ. Are we following him without reservation? And finally, notice that Bartimaeus follows Jesus on the way to the cross. True discipleship means the way of the cross. Dying to self daily, to seek Christ on the throne of your life and to usurp your own power and self in your life. One of my favorite quotes is from the Puritan Thomas Boston. He writes, Self is Christ's greatest rival in the world. The greatest opposing force 
to the gospel, to the reign of Christ in the world is not some other religion. It is not humanism or some secular culture. The greatest opposition to Christ in the world can be found in your own heart. Because we do not want to let go of our rule and reign and follow Jesus to the cross. Does your faith include the cross? And so as we begin our time in God's word this morning, we we began with this question, do we have eyes to see? And that's how I want to end. Do we have eyes to see who Jesus is? Do we have eyes to see who we really are? Do we have eyes to see what it takes to follow Jesus without reservation? Do we have eyes to see that our faith leads us to a cross? For Jesus, for Bartimaeus, the cross is just a week away. For us, we pick up our crosses today. Do you have eyes to see the Son of David? Let's pray. Lord, we are in such great need of the gospel. And I I just want to cry out with Bartimaeus in this passage and say, Son of David, have mercy on us. We ask for mercy, knowing that we deserve nothing from your hand, and yet rejoicing that you do not pass over us in our cries for mercy, but you stop and you lift us up. God, as we look to this new year, I pray that it would be a year where we truly see you for who you are, that we earnestly and zealously follow you as your disciples not out of our own power, but through the power of your Spirit. Help us, Lord, for Jesus' sake. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.